there's a strong connection between experience of motorcycling and dreams I had of flying when I was a kid, like just flying about in my pajamas. A motorcycle is it's the same scale as the human body. It's like you plus maybe a foot on either end. And you're not really aware of it when you're on the bike. So a lot of the time I'm trying to strip away everything that's distracting from that experience. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin, and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Our guest this week is the award-winning industrial designer, Hugo Eccles, whose current role as a co-founder and design director of Untitled Motorcycles caps off a celebrated career at the elite design firms IDEO and Fitch. Hugo has worked with just about every Fortune 500 you can imagine. AT&T, American Express, HP, LG, Honda, Ford, and Nike are just a few of the long list of global clients who formed his design sensibilities over the first two decades of his career. And now he gets to work exclusively on his personal passion, motorcycles, creating the most sought after bikes in the industry. Hugo creates custom motorcycles for individuals and partners with manufacturers such as Ducati, Triumph, Motor Guzzi, Yamaha, and Zero. His next generation models include the Ducati Hyper Scrambler and the Zero XP electric bike. In our interview, he shares his creative process driven by a passion for both writing and design. Hugo grew up in the English countryside where his fascination for cars and mechanics started young. When he wasn't playing in the woods with his brother, he was busy sketching cars and motorcycles a talent that would one day shape his design career. I essentially grew up in the countryside, surrounded by woods. It was great, just got to run wild and go off with my brother in the morning and then they'd expect us back before dark and we just had the run of the place. My dad was a real petrol head. He was an amateur race driver. One of the first cars we had was a Sunbeam Tiger, which is a, a little British car, a Sunbeam Al Alpine, but with a big American engine in it. I think actually a Carol Shelby of Cobra fame had something to do with it. So it's almost like a precursor to the AC Cobra, which was similarly a small English car with a big American motor in it. So I've always been brought up with cars and all things mechanical. My, my family's got a long kind of engineering history. My great grandfather was one of the founders of the Royal Automobile Club, was very much into kind of building steam vehicles and played a big part in electrifying Britain. In fact, there's a story that he got punched by Queen Victoria when he was, he got into a disagreement with the Queen when he was installing electric lighting in Buckingham Palace, and she supposedly punched him playfully on the shoulder. Some stories said she slapped him, but I think that she just punched him. <laughs> and especially on my dad's side of the family, there's a lot of kind of engineering and a lot of kind of artistic background. So my grandmother's a very good kind of drawer. My dad was great at sketching cars and stuff like that. Unrealized passions, I think, really. And so I was always really excited by drawing and cars and all those sort of artistic pursuits. For most of my education, though, I 
didn't really I didn't do any kind of art or design it wasn't really regarded as a sort of quotes proper subject design and art was what the remedial kids did I think maybe also there's a slight sort of bias against it because at the time there were technical colleges which were for trades plumbing and being an electrician and also design was kind of thrown into that you could go and do fine art at university but design wasn't one of those subjects and then of course in the 1980s design really sort of came to the forefront it was this big new thing and it was super exciting so I left school when I was 18 and did an aptitude test and they said there's this new thing called design which has got a bit of science and it's got a bit of art in it you might like that and I think just at that time design was this sort of nascent thing I think England was probably transitioning it was in the tail end or the middle of transitioning from a sort of manufacturing economy to a kind of thought-based economy service economy and so design was one of these things that was going to be one of these giant sort of service industries Hugo went on to art school in Cardiff Wales and eventually earned a prestigious Master's of Arts degree from the Royal College of Art in London. This landed him at the famous industrial design firm, IDEO, right out of school. So was IDEO your first job or where was your first job at a design school? No, it was my, my first job was at IDEO in London, yeah. I was lucky enough that I, so the Royal College of Art, I, I went and studied after I'd done my bachelor's at Kingston. I then went to Royal College of Art to do a master's in industrial design. And my final project was domestic office system. and The office of the future, which is at home. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. And it was, how do you work? This was, this was 1995. So it was like, how do you work with laptops at home? And it was touching on new ways of working. And at the time, IDEO had just inked a deal with Steelcase or a partnership. Idea were charged with looking at new ways of working, you know, hoteling, hot desking, all those kind of buzzwords that fell out of fashion and actually have come back into fashion again. So essentially it's flexible working, working from home and stuff like that. And so just by dumb luck, really, my major project just meshed with what Idea were interested at the time. So I started working at Idea. So it was a real, it was a really great introduction into the design agency world. And uh, your CV for, or your portfolio in that era is like literally a who's who of consumer goods in Nike, Virgin, Olympus, Tagore. Was there anything particular that really stood out that just says, wow, I got to work on this? Can you share some of those? Yeah, some of the later ones, like Nike was actually after I, I, I worked at IDEO and then I worked with a British designer called Ross Lovegrove. And after working with Ross, I then set up my own studio and I, I got a chance to, I got approached by Nike to do some concepts for watches, which were really interesting. And we were one of a few invited designers. I think Mark Newsom was one of the other ones, which was nice company being. And yeah, just look at how we advanced Nike's kind of watch offer. So this is about sort of 1998, something like that. Because Nike had all these watches, but they were a bit, they were worried that people who'd grown up with Nike were growing out of Nike. It was how do we help that company transition? And then there was some really interesting technology that allowed a kind of a dress watch to transition into a sport watch. It never got realized, unfortunately, but it's the thing that's always kept me fascinated about industrial design is it's so very varied. Like I said, I worked on everything from office furniture systems to mobile phones to children's toys, car interiors, medical products, you name it, cutlery and crockery, all sorts. It's really interesting. I think that probably most of the training we got from the Royal College of Art was it's mostly a lateral thinking. Oh, and that's a diverse like portfolio because I've worked with a lot of designers, industrial designers, and they just have, have a niche, but you did pretty much anything in your home, your car, your pocket, and even in hospital. 
and maybe even a future rocket. But in, in terms of your your transition into automotive, though, so you had Peugeot, Citroen, which is was PSA Peugeot Citroen because the Pac Man thing, and then Honda and Piaggio. How did you go from the cons- some of these other products into that, and then you went on to to Ford Europe, which was one hundred percent. At a transportation. So let's talk about that transition and how that happened. Yeah. So I think when I was at IDO, we did some work with the Piaggio. And then when I was at Ross Lovegrove, we did work with PSA, which is Peugeot Citroën, on, on a little kind of urban car that was really interesting. And I think they'd come to us knowing that we were not vehicle designers, we were industrial designers. So just to get a, a different kind of perspective on it. And that during that project, I worked with a friend of mine, Boris Furco, who now works at, who then went on to work at Ford. And then when Ford had this internal project in about 2002, 2003 to work on their next generation car, the KA, which is this sort of sub-Fiesta entry-level car. I think it's predominantly for the European market, European Asian market. I don't think it ever came over here. But we were brought in as a little sort of maverick team to just come up with some concepts. And it was, and so I moved to Cologne in Germany and we worked on that project for like a year, but it was fascinating. And it's something I've always been really interested in, obviously, cars and, and, and motorcycles and such. Where was your first motorcycle? What kind of motorcycle was that? I got into it relatively late. I mean, my dad had a motorcycle when I was a kid, which I was very impressed by. I think in retrospect, it probably wasn't that impressive. It was like a little Suzuki 250. But he would commute from Henley, where we lived, to London, where he worked, which is probably about a 45-minute ride. But a very kind of James Bond. He'd have his sort of suit and tie underneath his weatherproof coverall. So I think that must have had an impression. That must have made an impression. And then actually, it was not until I was at college and a friend of mine had a motorcycle and I think I was about 19 or 20. He let me have a go on it. And then I was just hooked. So I had a question about radio as Silicon Valley Regional had a lot of impact on a lot of the tech consumer products. And it's certainly Mystique, and there's been books written about the founders, and, and they're all very interesting. And what did you bring from that, that ultimately you started thinking, you know what, this is Hugo Echo's design. Like, you became the designer. What was changing in terms of your design knowledge, aesthetic, or how you started applying that? Because now you have booming career. It's interesting. You know, industrial design is very varied, which has always fascinated me. Like I said, one week you'll be working on a furniture range for IKEA, and then the next month you're designing air conditioning machines for LG or something. And I think that's one of the real strengths of industrial design is that because we inhabit so many different kind of industries and categories that we can pull insights and innovations from one and, and pull them into other industries. And we're not experts. I mean, we're expert industrial designers, but we're not experts in any particular field. I've had this conversation with people before. We're not engineers either. In a lot of ways, we're, we're very ignorant about things, which I think is good in a way because we're really well positioned to be the kind of advocate for the consumer, for the user, because they're not engineers either. They just want to use things as they want to use things. And in a great way, not being an engineer, I don't know what the stupid questions are. So I ask the stupid questions. <laughs> but sometimes that's where the innovation comes from is, well, couldn't we just turn that upside down? Would it work? And every project's different. And one of the challenges with design is it doesn't really scale. Every project's different. Every object you're designing is different. The market you're designing for, the users you're designing for, it's different every time. It's not scalable, really, however much we'd like it to be. And yeah, IDEO say it a lot, don't they? They say fail fast, and they've got some similar sort of quotes like that. 
innovation is failure. To find the tenth thing, you've got to fail nine times before that. And it's so it's a really interesting subject because most of the time you're just failing. <laughs> and I think if you didn't like that, you'd find it really frustrating. <laughs> but it's hugely inspiring. And going back to teaching, I. I mean, actually, I think failing is a misnomer. I try to explain to my students that actually, I think a more accurate description would be, it turned out differently than you expected. It's not necessarily a failure. You thought it would do one thing and it did something else. But sometimes that something else is actually better than the thing you were trying to do. And you're like, oh, that's really good. I think every project builds on the other. And we're designers, cultural sponges. You can't help but be affected by the projects you work on and then the cultures that you live inside of. Hugo's career as a gifted designer led him from London to another design mecca, New York. Followed by a short stint in Ohio, which similar to Detroit is known for its influence on the automotive industry. And then he moved to San Francisco, where he finally found his calling to design motorcycles. On the show, we cover a lot of transportation. And we've had some of your design peers, but motorcycle enthusiasts and archivist Paul D'Orleans, because one of your show-stopping motorcycle design is at the Peterson Automotive Museum. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a minute. But how do you go from designing all these things, and you worked a little bit in transportation, to focusing on two wheels? What happened there? We have 200 million people globally in the world ride two vehicles. In the U.S., we're still behind. And what made you decide, you know what? I want to put some inertia into this market. Yeah, I think a couple of things happened at once. I moved to San Francisco. I moved here with my wife, who's Canadian, but well, Canadian-American. So she has uh, dual nationality, which meant that before when I was working in the States, I was on a work visa, and now I was on a green card. So that meant I could get away with not having a, quote, adult job because... <laughs> I didn't have to justify my presence in, the, in this country for a work visa. And I think, you know, being in San Francisco with a motorcycle culture, California's culture of uh, customization and, and obviously hot rodding and stuff, but that's a little bit more from Southern California. And being able to have this sort of opportunity to start my own thing. And my wife's uh, an author. When we lived in London, I had the kind of adult job and was supporting both of us while she was finishing her book. And so we came to San Francisco and it was a slight sort of reciprocal thing. It's like, okay, we're going to give your thing a go. And in fact, I really credit her as well for just starting the motorcycle thing, really. It just started with a really innocent question when she asked me, this might be a stupid question, but you love design and you love motorcycles. Have you ever thought about designing motorcycles? In retrospect, it was interesting. I think you know, I was waiting for permission to do it. So yeah, that's what started that. And then, and I, like I said, I've actually, I've got this whole repository of just a lifelong fascination with initially cars because of my dad and then motorcycles later on because of my own passion with motorcycles. I think also partly because I owned like a lot of Italian motorcycles and there's actually a joke about Motoguzzi's, which is an Italian brand of motorcycle, which is turning owners into mechanics since 1913. <laughs> I never heard that. It's like my Fiat. It was the same thing in college. It never went anywhere. <laughs> hey there, it's Donna. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. 
like Jay Giroux, the co-founder and CEO of Damon Motors, who talked to us about how he has dedicated his entire career to designing electric motorcycles to help lower our dependency on oil. We're putting $200 gas into our cars, and the vast majority of it is going to friction, heat, and emissions. So we're buying destruction to the earth. I realize the motorcycle side dwarfs the number of vehicles driven compared to cars. And of course, it's not being addressed in the way that the car industry is being addressed by dozens and dozens of electric car companies today. I learned something, actually a lot of somethings, every time I talk to a new guest. They're pioneers. They're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell, and I share them with you every week. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. So let's talk about what you do with these bikes. So you have a 1975 Motor Guzzi. You have this kind of hyper scrambler thing you created. And then you also have this really cool new 21st century electric, you know, Zero XP. That's like a showstopper at the Peterson Automotive Museum year-long curated event that I saw. And you were so clever and in chatting with me in front of the XP, and you waved your, your hand across the bike and it lit up, electrified. I'm like, whoa, magic. How did you do that? So I think there's a lot of magic up your sleeve. You do something, you bring them to life to a different level. What's Take us through what is really going on with these aren't just like they're show horses, supermodels. I think for a start, with all of the projects, I start by just stripping as much of it as I can to really see what it's like underneath, see what's there. I try to be really respectful of the bike. I will strip a vehicle and then to a certain extent, it will tell you what it wants to be. So I really try not to be too dogmatic about it and have this sort of preconceived idea of like, I'm going to do a chopper with this. And sometimes that's quite difficult with the brands that we work because sometimes they're like, well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I don't really know yet. You've got to kind of give it to me. Let me strip everything extraneous off it and then I will get a sense of what that wants to be. The Moto Guzzi, the 1975 Moto is it's got this beautiful Tonti frame from the 1970s. It's quintessentially like a cafe racer. And that was a client project, a private client project. And we were really just trying to capture the way he remembered Moto Guzzi's when he was a kid. He'd always wanted one and he remembered these Le Mans models. He'd been hankering after one for ages. And it was interesting because we bought, we, it was very difficult to find. We found a Le Mans tank, like an original one, and we put it on the bike. And we both stood back and went, Oof, that's a bit disappointing, actually. Like, it's not how I remember it. And then we had that whole conversation. Well, why don't we just build it the way we remember it, not the way it really was? Because you, you were smaller. You were a kid. Like, everything was sort of slightly more exaggerated. But it was also trying to be very respectful to that bike and not make it do something weird that was out of character of it. And then with a BMW, which is a R100 airhead, but that and the Guzzi, a Supernaturale, they're more tasteful homages, I would say. I tried to put my, I mean, as a designer, I, I was, I tried to put myself in the original designer's place and imagine what their original design intent was before it all got cost engineered and they had to make a ton of compromises for production. It's almost take all the production compromises back out. And obviously there's, and what would they do with some of the technology they have now? So all these beautiful little LED blinkers and I don't think any designer wanted to put like a blinker on their bike that was the size of a side plate. You know what I mean? It's you know huge. So a lot of it was sort of driven by that. The more kind of progressive 
bikes, like the Ducati Hyper Scrambler, which is this orange framed motorcycle based on a 2015 Ducati Scrambler. Again, I was just trying to kind of uncover what I thought was sort of already there. There's, I think it was at Cezanne, I think. But one of the sculptors said, like, they don't really sculpt anything. They just release the form from inside of the block of clay or the block of marble. Like, the object's already in there. And I'm not equating myself to to any of those masters but i'm just saying it's a sort of similar process where you strip it down and then you kind of there there's almost some sort of inevitabilities in there that direct what you do so with the hyper scrambler i stripped it off and it had this beautiful trellis frame which is very quintessentially a ducati and in fact actually the scrambler is probably the only ducati that has a true trellis frame left and so i just did not want to cover that up i built like this really slim tank that sort of sat on top of the existing frame it had a really interesting taper shape to it. And then so when I got around to designing the seat, I started designing a kind of straight seat and it just didn't look right. So we tapered it out. So it got fatter at the back. And then we had this sort of seat and tank that were all diverging towards the front and getting narrower and narrower. And so almost the headlight was an inevitability. It was like, well, we have to put something narrow on the front just to kind of keep that lovely form that has almost kind of designed itself. Hugo thinks and talks like a designer. That much is clear. He's also, more importantly, an innovator who refuses to be constrained by legacy features. For example, when he designed the XP0 electric motorcycle, he stepped way back to get the bigger picture of what really is an electric bike. Electric was really interesting. It it was the first electric bike I ever designed. Zero contacted me in 2018, I think, or late 2017. They hadn't released the bike yet, and they gave me exclusive access to it. And yeah, I I wanted to try to have a proper look at as a kind of typology and have a stab at inventing a design language for electric that wasn't mimicking gas bikes. Because there's a lot of electric bikes that look like gas bikes, and I just think it's a little redundant, personally, and a bit of a missed opportunity, I think. Electric is the first new propulsion technology we've had in 140 years. And it made me, when I was designing the electric bike, I started doing some research on the history of motorcycles. And it really made me, I was very inspired by the 1910s and the 1920s in motorcycle history, where there weren't really any industry standards yet. And didn't people didn't really know how I was, where do you put the motor and like, how do you sit on it? How do you steer it? Does it have a steering wheel? Or is it like a bicycle? Or is it levers or something? So there was this Cambrian explosion of weird and wonderful kind of creatures and forms and stuff. And that's my aspiration for this sort of nascent electric technology. I think it should really be like that. No rules, no holds barred. Let's just go for it. Let's just see, almost go back to first principles. And obviously with certain restrictions, because I was working with an existing platform, but if I'd never seen a motorcycle, if there had never been gas motorcycles, how would you design a motorcycle? Like really? And that was actually hugely challenging to do because you have to you have to try to unlearn everything you know and really interrogate it back to something we touched on earlier try to be really transparent about well why does this feel better than that is it just because it's so familiar therefore it's recognized and therefore it, it's recognizable because it's familiar and because it's familiar it's reassuring or do we go somewhere else that's it kind of logically makes sense but i have no idea if people are going to love this or hate this how do you ensure 
like this next generation of consumers are, are tracking, uh, you're tracking and trying to get more people to ride motorcycles. I think it, the electric boom is helping that. The popularity of scooters all over San Francisco is an example. In LA, scooters, maybe not as many, but San Francisco is kind of a good test market for all things that kind of move, right? Even like the zip car, you know, came from the Bay Area. And then, of course, we all know Tesla and electric. And how do you make sure you got to stay in touch? Northern California is fascinating because it really is the center of the EV industry, really, because Silicon Valley. I think something like 50% of all American EV companies are in California. There's this whole innovation culture. And yeah, and like you said, there's all these sort of ride shares and transport as a service and all those kind of really fascinating things. My approach was, in a way, to be on trend by not being on trend. I think the trouble with style is it's generally attached to fashion and fashion is is very temporary. I think it's a Charles Eames quote about, if I had to choose functional style, I choose function because function never goes out of style. Even if it's a sort of aesthetically functional. Try not to be too trendy about anything because it just doesn't, there's no longevity to it. So just try to be really, make some really truthful decisions, like some really solid decisions about some things. And and again, you know, I think that's part of why I was slightly, re- I was responding against making a motorcycle, that, an electric motorcycle that looked like a gas motorcycle, because uh, I just think it really sells the technology short. I think it makes people think that electric motorcycles are just like gas motorcycles, just with a different motor dropped in but they're not. The experience is very, very different. I think it it shuts the door on a lot of people who are not necessarily that interested in motorcycles. And and motorcycling does have a, certain aspects of motorcycling have an image problem. What do you feel when you ride? Just, do you feel a sense of freedom? Do you just feel pure joy? Or it's like, oh, I got to de- redesign this. Are you constantly like thinking it needs to be redone? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, the nice thing about riding the bikes that you build is you do get to do get to kind of redesign them in your head. I think for me, there's a strong connection between the experience of motorcycling or the sensation of motorcycling and dreams I had of flying when I was a kid, flying about in my pajamas. A motorcycle is it's the same scale as the human body. It's like you plus maybe a foot on either end. And you're not really aware of it when you're on the bike. So a lot of the time I'm trying to strip away everything that's distracting from that experience. It's a bit like you want people looking at the picture, not the frame, right? The motorcycle is kind of like the means to an end. What you're really designing is the experience. And then you design all the physical things that allows that experience to be as pure and as uninterrupted and as sort of natural as possible. So I think rather than just sort of going, oh, let's make like a a lovely shape, what's this really like to ride? I mean, of course, there's that whole thing about when you step off it and you walk away from it, or when you walk towards it, it's still got to look still got to evoke emotions. But when you're on it, I try to strip away as much as possible. So it's almost the motorcycle dematerializes. It's just like you flying along the road, really, as if by magic. And I think with electric, that's exaggerated even more because it's quieter, shall we say. It's actually got a very kind of cool, almost sort of jet turbine, Star Wars TIE fighter kind of sound to it. There's no gearbox, so you don't have to change gears. And it's slightly heretical to admit it, but you don't really miss shifting gears as much as you think you would. Because one thing it actually allows you to do is shift some of that focus that you would have been on, am I in the right gear, into other things like road positioning, smoothness. So you, you just transfer those energies or those, or that concentration into other aspects of it. And I think, yes, it just sort of, in a way, you're less aware of the motorcycle, which is 
I know that sounds a bit counterintuitive, but that's actually the experience becomes purer, I think. Because, you know, you're really hugging that machine. You're holding it and your legs are wrapped around it. And it's very part of you and you're part of it. And there's a real kind of synergy there. And it's almost like the distinction disappears, right? It's just an extension of your body, really, isn't it? And if it works properly. And then everything that kind of breaks that, sort of pulls you back into reality, I think is, is something to be avoided. How do you include those who are less mobile that can't ride a two-wheel the way you and I can? How do you, and, and I know this is an area that you've had some custom work, what is your vision for the future of mobility and how we could all be a little more mobile and have that same, not just the aesthetic, but that experience and that freedom that without limitations? What, is, what are your thoughts to that and what are you working on that are you're helpfully building more hope for that? Yeah, inclusion is very important, obviously. But I think physical inclusion, and, and obviously there's gender inclusion, the motorcycle industry has not been good at attracting non-male <laughs> riders. How do we get women to ride? Well, you stop making it so blokey for a start, I think. And there is also that whole, let's just stop that whole shrink it and pink it nonsense, where like female products are just smaller than male products. <laughs> And maybe with like pink on them. Well, we saw that in the gaming industry too, right? The Game Boy was Game Girl and then it was like in the in all kinds of consumer products. It's infuriating. As an industrial designer, I mean we're going a bit off topic, but like as an industrial designer, like we very much shift clients come to you and they want to talk about demographics. And I always try to shift the conversation to psychographics. It really has nothing to do with how much you earn where you live, what gender you are. It's actually like, what psychological group do you belong to? And those groups involve, include a whole diverse set of people. So I think psychographics is much more interesting than demographics. But the inclusion, yeah, I think there's a whole thing. You know, there's a whole ecosystem. I think the way motorcycles are sold probably has to change. I don't like going to dealerships and I'm in the industry. I think it's horrible. They're just horrible experience. I can only imagine what that's like for someone who's non-male, non-white. I just, I can't even, I mean, horrific. I wouldn't even step into a dealership. That would be just too intimidating, I think. And then I think there's also physical inclusion. I'm doing a project at the moment with an amputee client who's missing his lower legs and his left forearm. And it's actually a gas bike. It's an automatic gas bike. But electric is tailor-made for this because there's, there's ways of consolidating the controls that allow certain audiences that have so far been excluded to now try motorcycling and yes that's absolutely fascinating i mean definitely the next bike after this gas bike that we're building for the client will be electric without a shadow of a doubt and then i think on the bigger ecosystem autonomous cars there's accessibility to people who could never drive like someone who's blind can now get around places and etc etc so i think that's fascinating and then i think there's a whole this Electric motorcycles are very different animals to gas bikes. They've got this sort of hybrid quality because they're kind of electronic and me mechanical simultaneously. That's very different from a gas bike. I mean, I, I really think comparing a gas bike to an electric bike is a bit like comparing like a landline to an iPhone. They both make phone calls, but the implications of the two things are so very different. And I think that's what a lot of people are not really getting with electric at the moment. And again, I think if you make electric bikes look like gas bikes, people are not going to be open to imagining and understanding that these things are actually very different things. But then I think also what's nice about the electric is there's all these e-bicycles, which are actually 
great gateways into two-wheel transport. And then there's a whole sort of ecosystem that's starting with making e-bicycles for kids and stuff. So I think the industry for a long while, it's lost that sort of gateway into it. When I was a kid, there were like all these little kind of 50cc kind of pooches and gileras and these little sort of two-stroke things that the kids would sort of whiz about on, like six-year-old kids and stuff. And that was really your kind of entry into the motorcycle stuff. You know, that got you in and then you would sort of progress upwards into bigger and bigger machines. And then the other thing I think that's really fascinating about electric, i just use the XP as an example, a lot of how it behaves is down to the software. So you can equally put someone who has 10 years of experience riding a motorcycle on that bike, on the XP, or someone who's just started, because you can completely change its characteristics. You can make it act like a little 125, or you can make it act like a 1,000cc sports bike. It's really your choice, which is amazing, I think. So you can kind of have your cake and eat it. You can have this amazing-looking sort of top-of-the-range sports bike, but actually just tune it so that you feel comfortable doing it. Don't get yourself into any trouble. So how do you take this younger generation through... The knowledge that, you know, if I were one of your students and they're just be a total sponge, you'd go like, wow, all these companies that you worked in. But some of the companies and the brands that you've worked with aren't going to be so popular with the younger generation, but they're going to be designing for the next. So how do you, what is their bridge? Yeah, I think it all comes down to people, to be honest. Technologies change all the time. I don't think human nature evolves as quickly as technology evolves. I think it ultimately always comes down to people. We're approaching a really fascinating future. We've got some huge challenges, which are very daunting, but also very exciting. Uh, you know, the transport is com being completely reinvented. Ownership is going to basically disappear as a concept, I think. So that's going to affect how you design things, I think, to a certain extent. I think a lot, a lot of it, like you say, is a lot of it's about behaviors and experiences and that revolves around people how people want to use things what they want to use them for building some flexibility into that motorcycles it's going to be interesting to see how motorcycles deal with the autonomous transport future the, the xp is gray and it's intentionally not a flashy color for a number of reasons because we were when we were designing we were imagining this autonomous future and in fact the intention was to paint the XP with a paint that's not particularly visible to humans, but very visible to computers and robots. Because actually, it's the robot car that's going to have to see you, not the person in the car, because the person in the car is not driving. So I think advising students, I think it still comes down to people, always. That's ultimately what it's about. And then just understanding what people want, not necessarily always giving people what they want as well. I think a little bit of friction is quite good. Without the sand, you don't get the pearl. If you want to hit the road with Hugo, his fabulous futuristic designs are on display on the Untitled Motorcycles website. Better yet, the Zero XP Experimental Electric Motorcycle is on exhibit this whole year at the Peterson Automotive Museum in Los Angeles, and a show created by Paul de Orleans, who's also been a guest on Before It Happened. I've seen the bike. I've seen the show. It's absolutely amazing. On the show, we talk a lot about electrification and sustainable energy and transformational technologies shaping the ways we move through the world. We'll continue to focus on mobility and upcoming shows, so stay tuned for more conversations with innovators bringing us the future of transportation. And check out our show notes for links to related content and more. Thank you for listening. Follow Before It Happened on Instagram and Twitter and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Susanna Camp with additional editing and music provided by Noda Labs.